Tonight, we're going to have some fun. We're going to talk church history is the primary topic of tonight. We're going to be talking about canon, councils, and creeds. And you have a little handout. Well, it's a big handout. That when we get to the specific handout, then, then we'll talk about it. <laughs> Yeah, it was easier than writing the slides, and I was like, everyone would appreciate this, and they're nice to have, especially when, when we talk about the, the heresies and the creeds. They're nice to have nice little summaries. So the next major topic that we're going to be discussing in relation to the validity of Scripture and the history of how we read Scripture is the concept of canon. And we're going to be talking about, in addition to that, the councils in the church, specifically in the early church, and then the creeds that came out of those councils, because they're all kind of related to each other. And this topic is very important as we go to study theology, and we'll talk about that as the night goes on. But first, let's talk about canon. The concept of the canon of Scripture. So what the word canon means is literally means read or measuring stick. In the Greek, or the English word is read. That's what the translation is. The Hebrew word is gane. The Greek word is canon. Um, the read was a form of measuring like a measuring rod, almost like a yardstick almost. And this word in the ancient world became synonymous with a standard. So really when we discuss the canon of Scripture, we're talking about a standard set of books that we are going to use. So we have in our Bible 66 books, you know, Genesis through Revelation. That has been set and established and it's not, it has not changed for, um, canon was kind of established in at least 150 A.D., so almost 2,000 years, canon has been, the standard of Scripture has been established. This is what we call the rule of faith. That's what the early church fathers called it, the rule of faith. Now, this is really important for us to study because it gives us a firm foundation to work from and be confident. So if you are confident that everything in here has been approved, has been considered, has been thought about, it's not just random collection, a random collection of books. It is a carefully constructed piece of literature that we can rely on. <clears throat> so that begs the question, where does canon come from? Where does canon come from? The first point that's very important is that canon comes from God. So the standard of our scripture specifically comes from God himself. Canon does not come from the church. So the church isn't the one who decided what goes in the Bible. If that were the case, then what would this be? This would be a man-made book. If the church is what decided what goes in this Bible then it's a man-made piece of literature, just like 
the Book of Mormon, who the church gets to decide that they, put, they can put new books in, right? And other works of literature like that. They can add stuff to it all the time because man is adding things in as opposed to God. So the church did not invent the canon of Scripture. It did not come from the church. The church merely discovers the canon of Scripture. We recognize the canon of Scripture and are servants to it. So what that means is who is deciding what goes into Scripture and what gets kicked out, ultimately? God, the Holy Spirit specifically. And we take that in faith because we as believers... As Christian believers believe in faith that we are all united in the Holy Spirit. So the same Holy Spirit that talks to you and I spoke to Peter and John and Athanasius and Irenaeus and all of our church fathers, right? So that Holy Spirit is the one who confirmed with our church fathers, with people like Peter, with people like Athanasius and Augustine, to give us the standard of Scripture that we can rely on. So it's not just coming from somebody's brain or somebody's mental capacities, somebody's own logic. It's coming from the entire body of the church. That's why last week when we talked about that really bad part of church, of the church that wants to do everything individually, wants it to be a one-man show, That doesn't work with this, and that's not what this is. This has been established over 2,000 years as perfect and complete. And this did not come from one man. This came from a group of people all moved and powered by the Holy Spirit. The church just discovers canon. We do not... And we, a word that is thrown around a lot in church history is we define it. We're not making up the definition. We're defining what's there. It'd be like me seeing, you know, something here like this is a can. We know it based on its shape. Its color is red, etc. That We're defining it. That's all we're doing. We're defining the word of God, saying this is what's in it. The only person who has established Our scripture is God himself. Now, even though that is the case, we still have several tests. These tests are, I believe, Holy Spirit given from God himself to determine, and we're going to talk about why I believe they're Holy Spirit given, because the test is derived from scripture. So we're going to look at this handout now, and there's not going to be anything on the screen. It's all in your handout. This is the tests for canon. This um, has been established since the early church. This is not a new topic. Um, Josh McDowell in New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, or Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he compiled it from lots of sources. But he has, in his book, uh, compiled six tests to determine if a book is worthy to be called canon. And obviously this was done, we're not doing these tests now. This was done in the early church when they were deciding what gets put in and what does not. So the first parts, the first test 
was, was the book written by a prophet of God? Okay? Was the book written by a prophet of God? Now, this is very important, especially in the Old Testament, if a book was written by the prophet of God. Now, what, in the Old Testament specifically, what does a prophet of God do? The prophet of God specifically reveals things from God to his people. So the prophet is already speaking the words of God. If the prophet is speaking the words of God and writes it down, that's scripture. That's the word of God. And that's what the majority of our Old Testament is. It is a prophet of God who is writing down his vision or his prophecies or his words from the Lord. So, quite simply, if the book's written by a prophet of God, we should probably include it in Scripture. And that's going to extend later. We'll talk about New Testament authors a little bit later. But if it's a prophet, it's probably fit to be included in Scripture. And when you look at our Old Testament, almost every book is written by a prophet. Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Torah, written by Moses. Moses was a prophet of God. Then you have the histories. Those were written probably in part by some of the prophets. And then we have the prophets. So, yeah, written by a prophet of God is a pretty good test. <clears throat> if it was not written by a prophet of God, then we can subject it to further tests. The second test, was the writer confirmed by acts of God? Was the writer confirmed by acts of God? Now, throughout Scripture, miracles and works of power often came alongside the authority and the prophetic gifting. So the first we're going to see is in Exodus chapter 4, 1 through 9. Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. This is the story of Moses... <clears throat> and Moses is given powerful signs by God. I am reading from the ESV here. Moses chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Otherwise, he's saying, How, What authority do I have? Which is kind of funny because Moses is going before an adopted family member where he did have some authority, actually. But, behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appoint you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. There you go. Go give him the paper. <laughs> so he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out... Behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, 
And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So what situation do we have here? We have Moses who is afraid that he will not be taken seriously, that he will not be recognized as a prophet or as a messenger from God. And what does God do to prove his authority? He says, here's some miracles that you're going to perform. These miracles will accompany you and give you authority. Okay? So, Moses' authority, his prophetic authority, his prophetic gifting was followed with, preceded by, it, it came alongside of these miraculous events. Another such event we have in 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. Makes you think of Stephen. He just said this is Eric just said this is one of his favorite funniest stories. It makes him think of Stephen. I don't. Why does it make you think of Stephen? Oh, because Moses ran from a snake, and Stephen's deathly afraid of snakes. Yeah, Stephen with snakes and Matt with spiders. I always remember Matt, little spider. He'd scream like a little girl, and <laughs> still does. <laughs> He is the easiest person to scare, Matt is. <laughs> so we have in uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, and I'm not going to read the whole passage because it's long, but it's important to understand the concept here. Elijah confronts King Ahab. King Ahab is the evil king of northern Israel who is wicked worships Baal, has brought in Jezebel, his wife, the evil queen, to, she pretty much rules the kingdom through him. And Elijah proposes a test. Whose God reigns supreme? Is it the God of Israel, Jehovah, or is it Baal? And they bring out their prophets, and of course they say, we are Baal, Baal's king. And they gather at Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal do all these crazy acts to try to get Baal to answer. And Elijah mocks them, and it's absolutely hilarious. I'm going to actually read it because it's really funny. Um, okay, so this is 1 Kings 18, chapter, verse 20. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left, a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it, and I will prepare the other bolt, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. 
And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God. But put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there is no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances till the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered, and no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bowl in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fall on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let, none, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So we have this amazing miracle that proves the authority of the prophetic work of Elijah and also proves the authority of the God of Israel. <clears throat> so, was the writer confirmed by acts of God? That's the second test. Um, a third example of this, we have the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus was given attestation. So the witness was the miracles that he performed. And we see that in Acts 2, verse 22, men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst and, your, and you yourselves know. So the works of Jesus were primarily, the miracles were primarily to reveal who he was and his authority. That's why it was really important when Jesus was at the wedding at Cana with his family, he didn't want to perform miracles there because his time had not come, meaning he was not ready to establish himself as the authoritative Messiah. <clears throat> 
So in all these cases, the miracles are given as an act of God to confirm the word of God. They are not merely miracles for miracles' sake. They are given to confirm the authority of who God is. And this is true today. The miracles that happen in our modern day are primarily for the purpose of evangelism and for moving people into a position of softness to understand their need for a savior. It's the same concepts to, to promote the authority of God, the authority of those who are there as God's messengers. That make sense? Okay. Our third test. Did the message tell the truth about God? Sorry, I misspelled that. It should say God cannot. It's not canon. I've written canon too many times by the time I type this out. God cannot contradict himself, nor can he have any falsehoods. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 through 18, We read, was I vacillating, this is Paul speaking, vacillated when I wanted to do this? He's talking about making different plans. Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. God does not contradict himself. God does not vacillate. Another verse we have is Hebrews 6.18. Hebrews 6.18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible... For God to lie, we have fled, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God cannot lie. There are no falsehoods about God. He cannot have any falsehoods in his being. And we'll talk a lot more about that when we get into theology proper. But God cannot contradict himself. God cannot lie. So what that means, if it's something established in Scripture and this other book comes in and says, oh, God is this way. It's like, no, God's not that way. That should be thrown out. Um, there's a lot of extra biblical texts in the, um, oh, what's the name of it? The Apocrypha that do just that. They describe one, one such text talking about it's an extra gospel that delves into the life of Jesus when he was a little boy. So one of the stories, it's a funny story and awful at the same time, is Jesus got mad when he was a little boy and smote somebody to death, another little kid, and Mary said, Jesus, that's not right. And he said, okay, and he raised the little boy up from the dead. That, that's not in Jesus' character. That's not truth. That's not reality. Okay, that's something extra biblical. So we can throw that out. Um, 
There's other ones that describe God as very vindictive, and these are some Old Testament works, or sorry, Old Hebrew works, Old Hebrew in the Hebrew Apocrypha, that just don't fit with anything else in Scripture. Um, there's also some very fantastical, fantasy-like texts that don't really have a place. They don't fit at all, right? And they don't tell the truth about God. They kind of mock God in some cases. Some cases they paint God as very strange, a strange being, almost more like Baal than like God himself. So God cannot lie about himself, meaning his word will not contradict itself. No work with false claims can be the word of God. Now, um, one question about this that needs to be addressed, because you will inevitably get this question, is, well, if we're just throwing out all the falsehoods, all the contradictions, doesn't that kind of present like a straw man of sorts? Where the only thing in here is stuff that we've picked and chosen to be uncontradictory to each other? You understand the question I'm asking? So if I throw out all the stuff I don't like, what am I left with? Only things I like, right? And so this line of logic might lead one to think that. However, the thing that we need to establish is, one, we're applying all these rules. We're not just applying one rule. We're applying all these rules. So, one, it cannot contradict itself. Two, it also has to be written by a prophet of God. Three, it also has to be confirmed. Also, it has to come with the power of God, which we're going to... So there's a lot of other tests going on. This is just one of the tests. So we're not just throwing out things that, don't, that contradict other parts of Scripture. That's not what we're doing. Because most of the time, those things that contradicted it, they don't meet any of the other requirements. They're just extra stuff that somebody threw in or is interesting for history. Does that make sense? <clears throat> so there's lots of other tests. It's not just this one test. Test number four, does it come with the power of God? Hebrews 4.12. We were just in Hebrews. Let's go back there. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. So, the word of God is powerful. We know that, we attest to that, we believe that as Christians and believers. If this word is living and active, a good test is going to be if it's powerful to you when you hear it. And we as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, can attest to that. Everything that comes forth from here is powerful, is strong, is worth hearing. It is not, doesn't just fall limp, right? It is worth reading. And your spirit, the Holy Spirit inside of you, affirms that. The power of the message must be real and it must be transformative. This is a very good test and that's 
one of the reasons why we can have confidence because we know that the word of God is living and active. The fifth test, was it accepted by the people of God? The people of God is defined here as both Israel and the church. The early church specifically in this context, but Israel as well. When the people of God, the whole people accepted the message, collected it, read it, translated it, dispersed it, it was taken to be the word of God. So if some of these extra biblical texts, like we're talking about those extra gospels that are kind of weird, like the whole, uh, what's the movie uh, or book? Da Vinci Code is based on some of these extra gospels, right? These are new gospels that nobody's, nobody's heard of. Well, by, by about the 100th century AD, 100, 150, everyone was reading the four gospels as the four gospels. They knew that. That was established. There were no fifth or sixth or seventh gospels that they were reading. They read the four gospels. So from about 100 AD, which is the time that John wrote the book of Revelation, to present, we've only read those four Gospels. We can have confidence in those four Gospels. Now, some parts of the world, especially in the early church, and this is where last week's uh, lesson about translating it to different parts comes into play as well. If this little church in Corinth, let's say, or the outskirts of Corinth, this one little church was reading this one Gospel, and we found that one Gospel... Does that mean that that's scripture? No, because it's not in the entire church. The scriptures we have were established in the entire church. They were spread out in the entire church, in the entire nation and place of Israel. And everyone accepted them. We have biblical accounts of this. In 2 Peter... So this is the early, early church. This was even before the canon of Scripture was completed. In 2 Peter 3.16, I'm going to go back to um, verse 15, 2 Peter 3.15, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Okay, what does that word other lead you to believe about Paul's writings? What does Paul believe about? What does Peter believe about Paul's writings? They're included and on the same level of authority as Scripture. He's talking not about Hebrew, James, and John here. He's talking about the Torah and the works of Moses and the prophets. So Peter is establishing the authority of Paul's writings as scriptural already way before he w- Paul's writings were even established as part of the canon of Scripture. So that is a pretty good test. When other members of the church that are authoritative like Peter 
are saying, hey, this is Scripture. You should pay attention to it. The same goes for Jesus. When Jesus speaks and he says, oh, the words of Moses and the prophets, well, if Jesus says that they're Scripture, well, they're Scripture then, right? That's important for us to understand. Now, in terms of New Testament apostleship, we don't really have prophets the same way in the New Testament as we did in the Old Testament, mostly because we have the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, which we'll talk about that concept at another time. But apostolic authority was grounds for canon in the New Testament texts. Apostolic authority, not, it's important to understand, not apostolic authorship. Now, sounds like a lot of mumbling and jargon, but basically it did not have to be an apostle who wrote it. Luke was not an apostle. But somebody who had their authority from Christ as an apostle. That's what we mean when we talk about apostolic authority. These are people who the early church, and by early church I mean the direct followers of Jesus, like Peter and Paul and James and John, recognized as authoritative sources for Scripture. The authority from Christ is the key component. And we talked about this last week. Paul claims it's by the authority of Christ alone that he writes. And you can find that in just about every single one of his letters. It's only from the authority of Christ that I write. Do any questions on the concepts here, the tests for canon? Yes. Yeah, number four, <clears throat> the test for canon. Does it come with the power of God? And we have Hebrews 4.12, the word is living and active. So is the power of God contained within the words? Is it transformative? If it's not, it should be thrown out. Now that's probably, because Paul wrote lots and lots and lots and lots of letters. He didn't just write the ones that are contained in his New Testament. Probably some of his letters were thrown out of the canon because they were just like grocery list letters. Like, hey, here are my travel plans. Be ready for me. They weren't transformative and powerful letters. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, let's talk for just a second some things that are not canonical. Things that are not Holy Spirit-inspired. And this is not on your notes, I'm sorry, but I'm just going to talk about it for just a second. So the things that are not canonical are chapters, verses, page breaks, line breaks, and headings. In your Bible, all of our modern Bibles have headings, chapter numbers, and verse numbers. Every single one of those are arbitrary and not Holy Spirit inspired. Okay? And footnotes. <laughs> that, it will, yeah, and this is a silly statement to make, but at the same time, we have to be careful to not derive any theology, any thoughts, or any teachings from chapters, verses, headings, footnotes. Same with red letters, capital letters. You know there's no capital letters in Scripture? So that's not really a thing. 
So when you see your Bible and it has red letters in it, and you form theology based on red letters, meaning, oh, Jesus said it, that means it's more important, or, oh, that word's capitalized, I should pay more attention, that's not a thing. And that's what, those things are not scriptural. They're added after as helps and assistance to us. That makes sense? Yeah. Exactly. Some of them are not very helpful. And that's what we just have to be careful to not form theology or ideas based off of that. We have a tendency to do that because a lot of the, the verses and numbers were put in there by smart and intelligent people, but they're not prophetic. The numbers mean absolutely nothing. The, the numbers, the verse numbers, there are other numbers in Scripture that mean a lot that we'll talk about later, but that's only in like the Hebrew Bible. Um, in fact, like we showed last week, I showed you the picture of the Greek New Testament. It's just letter, 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 letter. There's no breaks. There's no capitalizing. There's nothing. It's just line, 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 line. So all those things are extra. All those things are not included in our canon. They're just there to help us. Does that make sense? You understand why I say that? Because we don't want to put any, any, any uh, weight behind those items. So... Why is canon important? Why is the establishment of what is truth important? Well, outside of the obvious that we can have a firm foundation, one of the biggest reasons why we need a canon of Scripture, why we need something firm and in place, is protection against heresy. Canon serves as the first line of defense against heresy. And heresy... I have defined as a theological stance or idea that is false and tends to undermine the core principles of our faith. I'll say that again. A heresy is a theological stance or idea that is false and tends to undermine the core principles of our faith. So the canon of Scripture stands as the first line of defense against heresy. What is always attacked, or the, the first item attacked in, or there's, there's really two, the two items attacked in heretical teachings is the person of Jesus Christ and the Scriptures themselves. So canon protects against both of those items because we have both of those clearly laid out within our Scriptures. The heretic will attempt to add or subtract from Scripture to accomplish their goal of pushing their own agenda. They're not even trying to necessarily destroy the church. I think Satan is. They're just pushing their agenda, whether that be monetary or whether that be power or something else. <clears throat> There were many early heresies found in the church, in the early church. Many are still in effect today. The canon, her, or heresies within the church, they've always existed. It's, it's from, from day one they existed. Paul, when he was talking, when he was teaching, 
Um, when you read Paul, he had this massive group that was actively working against him called the Judaizers, who tried to infu- in, infuse the early church with Jewish religion. And by religion, I mean the bad religion, not the good religion. But the bad religion where you have to get circumcised, where you have to eat kosher, where you have to do all these Jewish works. So that is a form of heresy. And that is what has always been within the church. And so the canon of Scripture was established as as the first line. The canon of Scripture it's important to understand, was defined, was established by councils, believers, and leaders. And we're going to talk about councils a little bit later when we talk about the creeds. I don't even know if we'll get to the creeds tonight, which is fine. But the councils were groups of believers that established certain things. They established heresies, and by heresies they would define the heresy and say, here's what you need to stay away from. And they would establish creeds to say, here's what we believe. They established canon. The first council that we know of was the Jerusalem council just after Christ ascended with Peter and James and John and all the believers. It's just a collection, a gathering of the church leadership of church believers to establish something or to decide something. So let's talk about some heresy. Oh, We'll talk about, do I have that? Nope. Why did I do that? Okay, heresy. This is your second handout you have here, heresies within the church. This is a really important topic to understand, especially as modern believers, because it creeps into every single aspect of our Christian life. And this, just like all my stuff, I didn't write these or come up with these, I took these from someone else. So if you want to read more, you can go to Pathios in this article. <clears throat> so we're going to go through some of these. Uh, these are the ones that I think are most important. This did come from a Catholic website, which a Roman Catholic website that is. So they did have a couple on there that I do not believe are heresies in relation to the authority of the Pope, which they would call us heretics for not believing in the authority of the Pope. That's not in Scripture anywhere. So, The first one, Montanism, is described as a prophetic movement that originated in Phrygia, province of Asia Minor, spread rapidly throughout the Roman Empire before Christianity was legalized by Constantine in the 4th century. It flourished well into the 6th century. It seemingly withheld the basic tenets of Christian doctrine to those of the universal Christian church. What that means is they did not, they believed they were the true church, and everyone else, so Peter, Paul, you know, everyone else outside of our little group was not the church. Now, the reason why we're talking about this is I've heard Christian denominations say that exact thing. Like, oh, we're the church, that church over there, now they're not. That's heresy. That is not correct. Due to its strong promotion of new and ongoing prophetic revelation, it was labeled a heresy. So what they said is if you are not receiving prophetic words, if you are not acting in the prophetic giftings, if you are not healing, if you are not doing this, you're not a Christian. Hey, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? 
Well, it should sound familiar to you because there's a lot of churches in our modern age that say that. This author makes the note that this may be the same idea that gave rise to the charismatic and Pentecostal movement of the modern church. The prophetic movement placed heavy emphasis on the spontaneous moving of the Holy Spirit and a very legalistic personal morality. So, we have to be very careful of that. It sounds very innocent, it sounds amazing, but it can lead you down a dangerous path, which anyone who has encountered churches like that, who attended churches like that, and I'm not saying everyone in the church is heretical, this is like yeast, it's a small amount that can ruin the whole batch. But anytime you have a church saying, we are the true church and those, aren't, those people over there are not, you need to be careful of that. There's some authors that I strongly disagree with, but I will never ever say publicly that I believe they aren't Christians, or I believe they aren't true Christians, or I believe they're not moved by the Holy Spirit, or they're heretics, or anything like that, even though I really, really disagree with them. Does that make sense? We have to be very careful on how we label other Christians. Tritheism is a belief which emphasizes the individuality of each person of the Trinity over the unity of the Trinity as a whole. <clears throat> Various theologians throughout church history have been accused of this tritheism. Some theologians taught the nature of the Trinity is a form of abstraction, meaning while the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are consubstantial, meaning they're all together, they are distinct in their autonomy. This view was condemned as heresy by the Third Council of Constantinople. So this one's really hard, but it's really easy for us to go down these routes. See, some of this language sounds so good, like, oh yeah, that makes so much sense. It's like, one professor I had in college who happens to be the world's leading expert on the Trinity in Christianity, he, we were talking and he was like, yeah, everyone likes to have all these different examples. And the bad part is some of those examples are heretical, like the egg. Anyone heard of the egg example? God's like an egg. There's one that's the shell and the white and the yolk. Well, that's heretical. That's not actually what it is. And it can be very dangerous. So we have to be very careful in how we describe God and how we describe the Trinity. <clears throat> because as he, this author says in the next paragraph, we can be polytheists disguised as Christians if we are not careful. We are not polytheists. We do not believe that the Trinity is three unique persons. It is one person. And we'll talk more about the Trinity as we get into theology proper later. That is exactly right. So she just said that runs today in the movie The Shack. That is 100% right. Um, the Shack describes God as like these three personalities. It's really weird. Um, and it appeals to a lot of Christians. But if we're not careful, that's where we can go. It's not correct, and it's not of God. <clears throat> next one. And these next few are speaking specifically about uh, Jesus Christ. 
Docetism is the ideology, the idea that Jesus is historic and bodily existence, namely the human form of Jesus, was merely a semblance without any basis in reality. So Jesus was just an illusion. He was just God giving us a ghost, God projecting himself on earth, or something like that. The Greek word is doketai, means illusionist. These early gr- groups who denied Jesus' humanity. This bishop was the first to prop- propagate the ideology after he discovered it mentioned in the apocryphal Gospel of Peter. <clears throat> Some believe it arose over the theological contentions concerning the passage regarding the word was made flesh. This was rejected at the first council of Nicaea, so very early on, and is unanimously deemed heretical by the Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, and Protestant denominations. So, that means everyone rejects this one. Um, But it's really easy to think about And it's really easy to see, especially when you have um, religions and ways of thinking that want to deny the flesh. And by denying the flesh, you want to deny um, sin, uh, you want to deny pleasure, and by pleasure I mean everything from eating food to... It gets into mysticism, that's what she just said. It can get into mysticism, it can get really... Um, and it's, it's derived, to give you a little backstory, the Platonist way of thinking, Plato was a philosopher, a Greek philosopher, was his idea was that everything physical was just a subtle copy of the real thing up in heaven. And his heaven was not our heaven. But you had the real, so you'd have the real table up in heaven, and this was just a copy of it. And it's just, just kind of kind of illusionary. It doesn't really exist. The real thing exists up there. So that's kind of where they get this from. But we have to be very careful because lots of groups within Christianity have tried to proclaim the idea of asceticism, meaning we put away all fleshly, all physical desires, all physical items, and just head towards the spiritual Right? We hear that all the time. I'm not of this world. Right? We see that bumper sticker. I, I, let's, let's deny the flesh. Okay? We have to be very careful because it can lead down some ugly roads. <clears throat> Arianism. This is probably the largest of the heretical movements. The word Arian is derived from the name Arius, who was a Christian. Presbyter, meaning he was a, a a preacher in Alexandria, Egypt, from the 3rd or 4th century. It asserts that Jesus, as the Son of God, did not always exist, but was begotten by God the Father at a specific point in time. This would render Jesus to be a created creature distinct from and subordinate to the Father while still being considered God the Son. That sounds like Mormonism, because it is... That's where they, you got to understand, folks, there's nothing new under the sun. Mormonism did not come from Moroni. It came from Satan through Arian, Arius. This was established as heresy at the first council of Nicaea. 
it was concluded that Arianism was a heresy. Just about any um, heresy that de- describes Jesus as not being divine, non-Trinitarian, is going to be called Arianism. Um, Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism view this, view God in this way, view Jesus in this way. He is a begotten being. He is not the all-sufficient, all-powerful, eternal, everlasting God. He is something else. So you can see why, even with this description, why it's important that we understand these. Because as we think about God and as we study God, we will have ideas like, oh, the Trinity, that doesn't really make sense. I wonder if it's like this. And if we don't have these things established, if we don't know these heresies, if we don't know Satan's playbook, then we can go off track really quickly. That's why we're talking about them. So that when we do study things like the Trinity, we have a guidebook and we know, oh, Satan's already determined, Satan's already played that card, so we're going to stay away from that. Make sense? Nestorianism emphasized that the human and divine natures of Jesus Christ were joined by will rather than personhood. It gets a little weird, but... His teachings were condemned. So this one is, is, is a little bit more heady, but we, it's, it's the idea that, I'm trying to describe it without, Jesus and his divine nature are separate, basically, in this, this ideology not joined together, not one being. And as we talk about Jesus Christ and Christology, one of the key components is that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And they are in the same person. Okay, And that's what makes Jesus so special because it doesn't make sense and it's not right and it's weird because he's 100% God and 100% man and 100% Jesus. The math doesn't add up. And that's the point. The math is supposed to not add up. He's a paradox. So this was a way to describe Jesus as something else other than what I just described. Yeah. So what Michael just said is this one is there's two natures and two persons that kind of work together. They're not fully God, fully man in one person. So, important to understand, so as we talk about Jesus, we need to understand this so we don't get off track, because it's really easy to, because when we're talking about things like the Trinity and the person of Jesus Christ, these paradoxes, we can get in the weeds real quick if we're not careful. The next one is similar, the monophysitism is the belief that Jesus Christ had only one single nature which was either divine or a hybrid of divine and human. It is contrasted into duophytism, which asserts that Christ maintained two natures after the incarnation. So what this basically means, (coughs) sorry, is a kind of development of the last one. So either Jesus Christ was God and not human, 
or he was just 100% human, he was just a man, or he was 50% God and 50% man, some weird hybrid. He was not a hybrid. He was 100% God and 100% man. Same natures together in one person. Or the same nature in one person, not two different ideas. <clears throat> okay. And the, one, of the, one of the important things is I keep bringing up the councils did this. The councils were established by the whole church. This was not just like, oh, this one little church group. But here, it was the entire church came together and rejected these. Modalism is the belief that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three different modes or aspects of God rather than three distinct persons within the Trinity. <clears throat> this gave rise, obviously, after the early church. Yeah. I'm sorry, you gotta go back to the you, you just need to explain this one of the paragraphs in there because it's very Catholic underneath me. Oh, um Nestorianism. Yeah. Yeah, last paragraph, because it says yeah I, that was one I forgot to take out. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, so in in the, the handout, one thing I'm gonna note church history, yeah, I'm I'm all Church history, in large part, was done by the early church fathers, which we have a lot of their writings, and then we have a lot of the writings within the Roman Catholic Church, the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church. They were what was around. Protestantism, which is Christianity, evangelical Christianity as we know it today, didn't begin until about 1500. So we have... The Orthodox churches, the Roman Catholic, Church history. Eastern Orthodox, they were the ones who established, who propagated, who wrote about God. Some of the smartest people in the history of humanity were included in this group. Augustine, Athanasius were just two of them. But um, so a lot of the, the Catholic teachings. Are, some of them have to be filtered out because they were the ones who wrote about it. Because it was, it's, so when we talk about things like Mary being the God-bearer, the Catholic Church places heavy emphasis on Mary being something other than just a human. And they would view it as heresy to say that Mary is something other than just a human. Or to say that Mary is just a human. We believe, as Protestant Christians... And biblically, that Mary, there was nothing special about Mary outside of her special circumstances, meaning her family line, her being a virgin, etc., those types of things. But herself, morally, there was nothing particularly special about her. No divine nature within Mary. Mary is just Mary. She is not to be worshipped. She was chosen as God's bearer as God's mother, or Jesus' mother, not God's mother. And so, but the Catholic Church puts a heavy emphasis on that. So when we're talking about Nestorianism, they bring in the idea that Mary was not, had, did not have a divine nature, which we do believe that Mary did not have a divine nature. So that's not a problem for us. What is a problem is the fact that the two natures of Jesus were separated or viewed in an inappropriate manner. I hope that clarifies. 
But as we talk about the creeds and heresies, we are going to get into some more Catholic ideas because they were the church at the time. When like one of the heresies was just about papal authority, and I just threw that one out because that's not important to us. So again, going back to modalism, modalism talks about the three different modes or aspects of God rather than three distinct persons within the Trinity. It has been generally believed to have gained popularity in the second century and been rejected because God, we view the Godhead as three distinct, co-equal, co-eternal persons in one substance. So basically what this one says is, as he, he says in this third paragraph, different states of water he's used to describe the Trinity or like the egg or pie or those types of things. You know, when God speaks to us, it's the Holy Spirit. When God appears in physical form, it's Jesus. When God does any creating, it's the Father or anything authoritative. That's not right. That's heretical. That's what modalism is. God does not appear in different modes in different places based on the need. God has three distinct personalities, three distinct persons, but also one person. Next is Pelagianism. This is another big one. Yeah. Modalism? Um, Well, I've heard described by some pastors um, when when Jesus, or, or yeah, so for instance, one that, that we have to be very careful of, and I'm guilty of this myself, is in the Old Testament, we see described the angel of the Lord uh, coming to speak to Abraham or to um, David or, you know, whoever that might be. Um, it, it can be tempting for us to say, oh, that's Jesus there. Or something like that. When we see Jesus, that's a Yes, exactly. <clears throat> but that's not Jesus. Because when did Jesus come on the scene? Huh? But the physical body of Jesus did not come into being until Mary birthed him. So that physical form, the angel of the Lord, we have to be very careful because we can start to build theology around it. And it's like, no, that is, that's, I'm not saying it's not God, and it's probably the person of Jesus Christ, but we just have to be careful when we say, oh, the physical things here, that's God in physical form, that must be Jesus. Um, I've heard when, when God speaks to you in your heart, that's the Holy Spirit. When God appears to you, that's Jesus. When God does this, it's God. So depending on the role that's needed, is God taking a different mode or a different role? It's like, think of if, if God had a switchboard and it's like, okay, I need to go left, so I'm going to switch into Jesus mode. I need to go right, so I'm going to switch into Holy Spirit mode. I need to go straight, I'm going to switch into God mode. That is incorrect, and that's what I'm trying to, to describe. So when we attribute um, different attributes to different members of the Trinity, that's in the same vein. So Jesus, just like 
the whole, so God is described as wrathful and angry. Jesus is also wrathful and angry. The Holy Spirit is also wrathful and angry. God is described as a creator. The Holy Spirit is also a creator. Jesus is also a creator. They all have the same personhood. They're not distinct in their powers or anything like that. Well, they are distinct, but they're not. See, this is where it gets really hard to describe. (laughs) No, they don't change modes. Yes, exactly. I hope that answered your question. Trinity is really hard to talk about. (laughs) It is not an easy subject. By any means, and, and that's not a cop-out, it just is a very, diff- that's why there's so many of these heresies. You know, we have all these heretics, like Pelagius and Arius, they were way smarter than me, they were way smarter than any of us, and this is the stuff they came up with. I believe Satan used them, all those things too, but Pelagianism is the belief that the original sin did not taint human nature and that the human will is freely capable of choosing good or evil without divine assistance. This one has creeped its way into modern theology big time. Love wins is this one. This theological concept is coined after the 4th century monk named Pelagius who taught human free will is sufficient to live a sinless life. Pelagianism has been summarized with the view that human beings are capable of earning salvation by their own efforts. So the idea that humans are basically good is heresy. Humans are not good. Humans are evil. Humans have original sin. There's nothing good about us. The only thing that is good in us is God. We need to be reborn. If there's something good in us, why do we need to be reborn? Well, we wouldn't need to be reborn because we're already good. So it totally defies everything taught by Jesus in the Gospels and everything taught by Paul. So, in these people's opinion, the value of Christ's redemption was mainly limited to example and instruction. Not good. This is big time influencing the church today, infiltrating the church today, because you just have to, you know, show up. You just got to be a good person. You just got to do, it's, and also that people are good. People are, we can trust people. We can, and that's just not Reality. Reality is, we have, we're born with original sin. We were born with evil in our hearts. And we need a Savior. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah, this stuff is so important because it's so easy to get tangled up in these ideas. And it really is. It's, this isn't... I mean, and we are all, all exactly, yeah, all the stuff today that we're seeing that we read about from, you know, whether it be uh, denominations going down a wrong track or false teachers or, or exactly, people don't even realize how, why they believe they believe and this is where it can lead. The what? Even like the, the emerging church, deconstructionism. These are all related to these, and these have been around since the time of John, right? These, these aren't new. This isn't new stuff. There's nothing new under the sun. 
That's from Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> so, the next one we have is Donatism. Named after the Bishop Donatus, Donatism is a theological position. This one is kind of more regulated to the Catholic Church, but is still important. Is the position that Christian clergy must be completely faultless in order for their evangelism to be effective and their prayers and sacraments to be valid. So, basically it's setting the clergy, the pastoral offices, at a way higher level than was needed. Um, and it's denying sin, it's denying all kinds of different things. What this can lead to is if the clergy have to be perfect in order for their prayers and sacraments to be valid, what do you think that can lead to? No, not that. Hidden sin. What do we have in the Catholic Church today? A lot of hidden sin that's really, really ugly and really, really bad. And it's from this type of theology. Right? So we have to be very careful to not believe that Christian clergy need to be completely faultless or anything like that. Or even we need to be completely faultless. This is specifically targeting clergy, meaning the pastors. Yeah, because we can fall into this if we paint ourselves. Exactly. Sinless. That's exactly right. That's it. We, can, we can easily fall into this, this trap. Some people don't even realize they're following this way of, of viewing the pastoral offices. The next one is Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnostics, meaning have knowledge. It's a collection of ancient religious ideologies and practices originating in the first century um, among the early Jewish and Christian sects labeled Gnostics. These groups emphasize the acquisition or gaining of personal spiritual knowledge, gnosis, which took primacy over gospel teachings, traditions, and ecclesiastical authority. Yes, very much in the New Age movement. Yeah, experience over Scripture in the New Age. They believe the element of salvation to be direct knowledge from a higher divinity, experienced as intuitive and esoteric insight. That means um, if you've ever experienced an individual or a person who, when you talk to them about salvation, says, well, I know I'm saved. They're like, well, why do you know you're saved? And they say, well, I just know it in my heart. I'm just going to follow my heart. This is what we're talking about here. It tends to really be in the New Age movement, especially within um, the postmodern, the church of the last hundred years. Gnosticism generally presents a distinction between spiritual transcendence and being blinded by the material universe, which is believed to be an obstacle to higher consciousness. So the things of this earth are hindrances to me receiving spiritual enlightenment. This is why we as Christians have to be very careful of New Age ideas, New Age movements, New Age lingo even. Not, not just that we believe it or follow it, but even lingo. One of my biggest pet peeves in the Christian world is the idea of soulmates. The idea of, and I catch myself doing it, 
Have you ever heard of, oh, it's not in the cards? Like those types of things, even though they're just little pricks, are really damaging to us. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's, this is uh, Linda saying going through the grief stuff. Some of the beliefs that people have about their spouses who have passed on, it's really, really ugly and can get really bad. You know, they're an angel watching over me or they're, you know, and, and it's all related to this idea that my spiritual experience transcends truth. My spiritual experience transcends truth. If you've ever experienced that or heard that, you'll recognize it when it starts popping up. My spiritual experience transcends what the Bible says, what the church says, what truth and reality are. The Bible has very clear definitions of what happens when people die. It doesn't matter what you feel or believe, right? And that's where this can go. My spiritual experience is the trump card. We have to be very careful, especially in modern Christianity. The other big one is dualism. This is the idea of two deities or deistic principles, one good and one evil. So I've talked about this before in my study, but the idea that God is on this side and Satan's on this side and they're just duking it out and we're caught in the middle or we're fight, you know, we're being fought over. That's garbage. What's reality? Reality is God is the creator of the universe and Satan is a created being. Satan has been defeated. There is no cosmic battle. There's just not. We have descriptions of battle scenes between angels. One, those are just descriptions. Those could be analogies for us to understand what's going on. But two, all of them end really the same way. Satan's defeated. Satan's defeated. Satan's defeated. And that's it. There is no cosmic forces at play here. There is no good and evil. There is God and not God. Period. We fall in the not God category. <clears throat> this can also be dangerous because some of these denominations, or some not denominations, some of these beliefs who believe this idea tend to put God of the Old Testament in the evil category and the God of the New Testament in the good category. Well, that's obviously not reality because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. They also put this elevates Satan to a position of deity, of godhood. Satan is not a god. He is a created being. The only god is God himself, is Yahweh. <clears throat> So we have to be careful, even in our own, I mean, we know these things, but we still have to be careful to not put ourselves in the position to believe in this cosmic power struggle. It's just not there. It's not reality. <clears throat> so the canon of Scripture, any questions about the heresies? There are lots more. These are the kind of the big highlights that we need to be aware of as we study the Bible and as we study Scripture. Um, <clears throat> the other thing with Catholic resources is you're pretty much going to have most of it right on because they tend to be very good scholars. <laughs> and so 
They write about things like heresies, which is good. We need to understand this. This is why when we talk about last week, I talked about kind of the, the anyone who says, this is a new idea. This is where that kind of stuff leads. Even in that verse I read yesterday in that crappy Bible, and it said, in reference to John 3.16, it said, for God so loved the world is how our Bible reads. And it says, for God so loved the Satan's world. Well, when you hear that, that sounds like a couple of these, right? And so we just have to be careful and realize that. Um, I think I'm going to end here, and we'll finish talking about the creeds next week. Yeah. I said, uh, yeah, so he's, he wants me to clarify the word polytheism and monotheism. Uh, polytheism means you serve or worship many gods. You have a view that there are many gods in existence. So something like Egypt, where they have multiple gods for different things. Or um, Hindu, Hinduism, where they have thousands upon thousands of gods. Um, we are monotheists. Yeah, many gods, many ways, many ways to do things. One god's a god of war, one god's a god of peace, one god's a god of other things. And so, you know, whichever god you follow, that's your way of worshiping. Um, which, the interesting thing, in the early church, you had the Jews who were monotheistic, believed in one god, and then you had the Greeks coming in who were polytheistic, believed in different gods. And so you had kind of those two clashing Within the early church, that's why we did have the rise of some of these heresies based off of those ideologies. Um, and the interesting thing is, you know, in, in history of the Old Testament and Jewish history, there's constant, one of the main themes of the Old Testament is the supremacy of the one God of Yahweh and everything else, as we read about in even that first Kings the other God did not listen. He was not there. No one was there. I like how Kings described it. They called and no one was there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the Jews were mocked because they only had one God, even though he was the only one who did anything. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's polytheism and monotheism. Any other questions about any terms or ideas? Monotheism, one God. We believe in one God. There's one creator, one person. That's it. Um, and so, as we talked about in some heretical circles, Christians have been accused of being polytheists in disguise as monotheists via the Trinity, but we are not. We are monotheists. We believe in one God who is in three persons, the Trinity. They still have a hard time with Jesus is because they cannot conceive of the idea that Jesus was God or that Jesus was a man or that God would become a man or something like that. So even though it was there, it's all there in the Old Testament. Any other questions or thoughts, comments? All right. Next week we will talk about the creeds. Um, if you can hold on to this, handout about the creeds you can you're welcome to read it they are very edifying just like this is very kind of the heresies are a little uh a little negative 
<laughs> oh, oh, that's a bummer. These are the opposite. These are great. So the creeds, the main purpose as you read them is to combat the heresies. To say, hey, this isn't right. This is what you should be saying. And they've been established for thousands of years now. And we'll go through these next week. At least we'll go through uh, what I have chosen as kind of the three core creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the definition of Chalcedon. But there are several other, and we'll probably talk about more next week as we dive into the creeds and some of the councils that establish those creeds. Yes? The heresies? Yeah, what do they use? Well, so David asked what they use to back up the beliefs of those isms, of those heresies. Uh, they're going to use extra biblical texts. So either their own writings or writings that are not a part of the canon. That's why the canon of Scripture is so important. Or what they feel. Or what they feel. How they feel, <laughs> How they feel is a big one. Or their own logic. They're, you know, humans are fallible creatures. That's why it's so important that we take the approach of the early church as a corporate body. We are, as a church, we are agreeing with, I'm agreeing with you. I'm also agreeing with John Calvin, with John Wesley, with Peter, with Paul. We have a whole host of witnesses. It is not just you and I talking about it. It's you and I talking about it with all of the church fathers together, with all Christians throughout history who have written a lot of stuff. And so that's how we combat it. But most of the time, if you get one person off on their own who has a crazy wild hair idea, that's where we get some of it. The other concept that we always have to be aware of is the idea that the spirit of Satan is active and at work trying to destroy trying to water down and trying to diminish the power of God, right? And so that's what a lot of these are. And you see it throughout history, to twist it. You see it throughout history. You see, you know, whether it be something like Gnosticism or whether it be something like, <clears throat> um, I don't even know, sin not being a big deal, like all those different things. It, it's all an attempt to twist the gospel. Yes, so as those ideas get watered down, a false religion, a cult, a heretical movement can come in and sweep up those people, and then those people are like the, like the seeds left on dry ground, snatched up. So, yep. Kind of like... Um, yeah. Exactly. That's exactly right. He's saying the Jehovah Witness, he was part of a, a good church, and then he had his own thoughts, and it kind of went downhill. Another example, big example of that is Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin was a pastor. He was a scientist, too, but you know, he, he was a Bible teacher. He believed in the Bible, and he kind of had his own thoughts. And Exactly. And he actually recanted all of his thoughts later. <laughs> but that's... They don't tell you that. <laughs> uh, yeah, they leave that part out. Well, and they, 
modern evolution is actually a combination of Darwin and Sigmund Freud and Nietzsche, which is Freud, Darwin himself was not nearly as damaging as Nietzsche and Freud were. But that's another conversation. So our protection against humanity is the holy word, the canon of scripture, which we know to be faithful and true. So if there's nothing else, we will pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for establishing yourself as our true and holy God, the one who gives us all truth and all knowledge. We thank you for that. We trust you in faith that that is the case. We give you all glory in Jesus' name. Amen.